Hello, this is Kelly McGee, and it is October the 14th, 2020, and we listened to the first hour of Machiavelli, and this is hour two, and it's going to be another hour, which we will do tomorrow. Okay, thank you. Those who practice the first system are able, by the aid of God or man, to mitigate in some degree their rule, as Agathocles did. It is impossible for those who follow the other to maintain themselves. Hence it is to be remarked that, in seizing a state, the usurper ought to examine closely into all those injuries which it is necessary for him to inflict, and to do them all at one stroke, so as not to have to repeat them daily, and thus by not unsettling men he will be able to reassure them, and win them to himself by benefits. He who does otherwise, either from timidity or from evil advice, is always compelled to keep the knife in his hand. Neither can he rely on his subjects, nor can they attach themselves to him, owing to their continued and repeated wrongs. For injuries ought to be done all at one time, so that, being tasted less, they offend less. Benefits ought to be given little by little, so that the flavour of them may last longer. And above all things, a prince ought to live amongst his people in such a way that no unexpected circumstances, whether for good or evil, shall make him change. Because if the necessity for this comes in troubled times, you are too late for harsh measures, and mild ones will not help you. For they will be considered as forced from you, and no one will be under any obligation to you for them. Chapter 9. Concerning a Civil Principality but coming to the other point, where a leading citizen becomes the prince of his country, not by wickedness or any intolerable violence, but by the favour of his fellow citizens, this may be called a civil principality, nor is it genius or fortune altogether necessary to attain it, but rather a happy shrewdness. I say then that a principality is obtained either by the favour of the people or by the favour of the nobles, because in all cities these two distinct parties are found. And from this, it arises that the people do not wish to be ruled nor oppressed by the nobles, and the nobles wish to rule and oppress the people. And from these two opposite desires, there arises in cities one of three results. Either a principality, self-government, or anarchy. A principality is either created by the people or by the nobles, accordingly as one or the other of them has the opportunity. For the nobles, seeing that they cannot withstand the people, begin to cry up the reputation of one of themselves, and they make him a prince, so that under his shadow they can give vent to their ambitions. The people, finding that they cannot resist the nobles, also cry up the reputation of one of themselves, and make him a prince as so to be defended by his authority. He who obtains sovereignty by the assistance of the nobles maintains himself with more difficulty than he who comes to it by the aid of the people, because the former finds himself with many around him who consider themselves as equals, and because of this, he can neither rule nor manage them to his liking. But he who reaches sovereignty by popular favour finds himself alone, and has none around him, or few, who are not prepared to obey him. Besides this, one cannot by fair dealing, and without injury to others, satisfy the nobles, but you can satisfy the people, for their object is more righteous than that of the nobles, the latter wishing to oppress, or the former only desire not to be oppressed. It is to be added also that a prince can never secure himself against a hostile people because of there being too many, 
whilst from the nobles he can secure himself, as they are few in number. The worst that a prince may expect from a hostile people is to be abandoned by them, but from hostile nobles he has not only to fear abandonment, but also that they will rise against him, for they, being in these affairs more far-seeing and astute, always come forward in time to save themselves, and to obtain favours from him whom they expect to prevail. Further, the prince is compelled to live always with the same people, but he can do well without the same nobles, being able to make and unmake them daily, and to give or take away authority when it pleases him. Therefore, to make this point clearer, I say that the nobles ought to be looked at in mainly two ways. That is to say, they either shape their course in such a way as binds them entirely to your fortune, or they do not. Those who so bind themselves and are not rapacious ought to be honoured and loved. Those who do not bind themselves may be dealt with in two ways. They may fail to do this through pusillanimity and a natural want of courage, in which case you ought to make use of them, especially those who are of good counsel, and thus, whilst in prosperity you honour them, in adversity you do not have to fear them. But when, for their own ambitious ends, they shun binding themselves, it is a token that they are giving more thoughts to themselves than you, and a prince ought to guard against such, and to fear them, as if they were open enemies, because in adversity they always help to ruin him. Therefore, one who becomes a prince through the favour of the people ought to keep them friendly, and this he can easily do, seeing they only ask not to be oppressed by him. But one who, in opposition to the people, becomes a prince by the favour of the nobles, ought, above everything, to seek to win over the people to himself, and this he may do easily if he takes them under his protection, because men, when they receive good from him of whom they were expecting evil, are bound more closely to their benefactor. Thus the people quickly become more devoted to him than if he had been raised to the principality by their favours, and the prince can win their affections in many ways, but as these vary according to the circumstances, one cannot give fixed rules, so I omit them. But, I repeat, it is necessary for a prince to have the people friendly, otherwise he has no security in adversity. Nabus, prince of the Spartans, sustained the attack of all Greece, and of a victorious Roman army, and against them he defended his country and his government, and for the overcoming of this peril, it was only necessary for him to make himself secure against the few, but this would not have been sufficient had the people been hostile. And do not let anyone impugn this statement with the trite proverb that he who builds on the people builds on the mud. For this is true when a private citizen makes a foundation there and persuades himself that the people will free him when he is oppressed by his enemies or by the magistrates, wherein he would find himself very often deceived, as happened to the Gracchi in Rome and to Messer Giorgio Scali in Florence. But granted a prince who has established himself as above, who can command and is a man of courage, undismayed in adversity, who does not fail in other qualifications, and who, by his resolution and energy, keeps the whole people encouraged, such a one will never find himself deceived in them, and it will be shown that he has laid his foundations well. These principalities are liable to danger when they are passing from civil to the absolute order of government, for such princes either rule personally or through magistrates. In the latter case, their government is weaker and more insecure, because it rests entirely on the goodwill of those citizens who are raised to the magistracy, and who, especially in troubled times, can destroy the government with great ease, either by intrigue or open defiance. And the prince
convinces not the chancellor amid tumults to exercise absolute authority because the citizens and subjects, accustomed to receive orders from the magistrates, are not of a mind to obey him amid these confusions, and there will always be in doubtful times a scarcity of men whom he can trust. For such a prince cannot rely upon what he observes in quiet times, when citizens have need of the state, because then everyone agrees with him, they all promise, and when death is far distant, they all wish to die for him. But in troubled times, when the state is in need of its citizens, then he finds but few. And so much more is the experiment dangerous, inasmuch as it can only be tried once. Therefore, a wise prince ought to adopt such a course that his citizens will always, in every sort and kind of circumstance, have need of the state and of him, and then he will always find them faithful. Chapter 10. Concerning the way in which the strength of all principalities ought to be measured. It is necessary to consider another point in examining the character of these principalities, that is, whether a prince has such power that, in case of need, he can support himself with his own resources, or whether he has always need of the assistance of others. And to make this quite clear, I say that I consider those who are able to support themselves by their own resources who can, either by abundance of men or money, raise a sufficient army to join battle against anyone who comes to attack them. And I consider those always to have need of others who cannot show themselves against the enemy in the field, but are forced to defend themselves by sheltering behind walls. The first case has been discussed, but we will speak of it again should it recur. In the second case, one can say nothing except to encourage such princes to provision and fortify their towns, and not on any accounts to defend the country. And whoever shall fortify his town well, and shall have managed the other concerns of his subjects in the way stated above, and to be often repeated, will never be attacked without great caution. For men are always adverse to enterprises where difficulties can be seen, and it will not be seen to be an easy thing to attack one who is his town well fortified and is not hated by his people. The cities of Germany are absolutely free, but they own but little country around them, and they yield obedience to the emperor when it suits them, nor do they fear this or any other power that they may have near them, because they are fortified in such a way that everyone thinks the taking of them by assault would be tedious and difficult, seeing that they have proper ditches and walls, they have sufficient artillery, and they always keep in public depots enough for one year's eating, drinking, and firing. And beyond this, to keep the people quiet and without loss to the state, they always have the means of giving work to the community in those labors that are the life and strength of the city. And on the pursuit of which the people are supported, they also hold military exercises in repute, and moreover, have many ordinances to uphold them. Therefore, a prince who has a strong city, and has not made himself odious, will not be attacked, or if anyone should attack, he will only be driven off with disgrace. Again, because the affairs of this world are so changeable, it is almost impossible to keep an army a whole year in the field without being interfered with, and whoever should reply, if the people have property outside the city and see it burnt, they will not remain patient, and the long siege and self-interest will make them forget their prince. To this I answer that a powerful and courageous prince will overcome all such difficulties by giving at one time hope to his subjects that the evil will not be for long, at another time fear of the cruelty of the enemy, then preserving himself adroitly from those subjects who seem to him to be too bold. Further, the enemy would naturally, on his arrival, 
had once burned and ruined the country at the time when the spirits of the people are still hot and ready for the defense, and therefore so much the less ought the prince to hesitate, because after a time, when spirits have cooled and the damage is already done, the ills are incurred, and there is no longer any remedy, and therefore they are so much more the ready to unite with the prince, he appearing to be under obligations to them now that the houses have been burnt and their possessions ruined in his defense. For it is the nature of men to be bound by the benefits they confer as much by those as they receive. Therefore, if everything is well considered, it will not be difficult for a wise prince to keep the minds of his citizens steadfast from first to last, when he does not fail to support and defend them. Chapter 11. Concerning Ecclesiastical Principalities. It only remains now to speak of ecclesiastical principalities, touching which all difficulties are prior to getting possession, because they are acquired either by capacity or good fortune, and they can be held without either, for they are sustained by the ancient ordinances of religion, which are so all-powerful, and of such a character that the principalities may be held no matter how their princes behave and live. These princes alone have states and do not defend them. They have subjects and do not rule them, and the states, though unguarded, are not taken from them, and the subjects, although not ruled, do not care, and they have neither the desire nor the ability to alienate themselves. Such principalities only are secure and happy, but being upheld by powers to which the human mind cannot reach, I shall speak no more of them, because, being exalted and maintained by God, it would be the act of a presumptuous and rash man to discuss them. Nevertheless, if anyone should ask of me how it comes that the church has attained such greatness in temporal power, seeing that from Alexander backwards the Italian potentates, not only those who have been called potentates, but every baron and lord, though the smallest, have valued their temporal power very slightly, yet now a king of France trembles before it, and it has been able to drive him from Italy, and to the ruin of the Venetians, Although this may be very manifest, it does not appear to me superfluous to recall it in some measure to memory. Before Charles, King of France, passed into Italy, this country was under the dominion of the Pope, the Venetians, the King of Naples, the Duke of Milan, and the Florentines. These potentates had two principal anxieties. The one, that no foreigner should enter Italy under arms. The other, that none of themselves should seize more territory. Those about whom there was most anxiety were the Pope and the Venetians. To restrain the Venetians, the union of all the others was necessary, as it was for the defense of Ferrara, and to keep down the Pope, they made use of the barons of Rome, who, being divided into two factions, the Orsini and the Colonesi, had always a pretext for disorder, and, standing with arms in their hands under the eyes of the pontiff, kept the pontificate weak and powerless. And although there might arise sometimes a courageous pope, such as Sixtus, yet neither fortune nor wisdom could rid him of these annoyances. And the short life of a pope is also a cause for weakness, for in the ten years, which is the average life of a pope, he can with difficulty lower one of the factions, and if, so to speak, one people should almost destroy the Colonesi, another would rise hostile to the Orsini, who would support their opponents, and yet would not have time to ruin the Orsini. This was the reason why the temporal powers of the Pope were little esteemed in Italy. Alexander VI rose afterwards, 
who, of all the pontiffs that have ever been showed how a pope with both money and arms was able to prevail, and though the instrumentality of the duke... I'm sorry, I just want to interrupt for a second, because when he's talking about the Venetians and the pope, um, tomorrow after I play the last hour of um, Machiavelli, I want to play the Plantagenus for you because they go hand in hand in this time period and that's how um, these wicked people got a handhold. That's how early it started. That's what I was researching and that's how early it got started and I can prove it to you tomorrow. Valentino and by the reason of the entry of the French, he brought about all those things which I have discussed above in the actions of the Duke. And although his intention was not to aggrandize the Church, but the Duke, nevertheless he did contribute to the greatness of the Church, which, after his death and the ruin of the Duke, became the heir to all his labors. Pope Julius came afterwards and found the Church strong, possessing all the Romagna. The barons of Rome reduced the impotence, through the chastisements of Alexander, okay, the factions wiped out. No, he also no found more. the way open no to accumulate memory. money in a manner such as yeah. never been practiced before yeah. Alexander's time. Such things Julius not only followed, but improved upon, and he intended to gain Bologna, to ruin the Venetians, and to drive the French out of Italy. All of these enterprises prospered with him, so much more to his credit, inasmuch as he did everything to strengthen the church, and not any private person. He also kept the Orsini and the Colonesi factions within the bounds in which he found them, and although there was among them some mind to make disturbance, nevertheless he held two things firm. The one, the greatness of the church, with which he terrified them, and the other, not allowing them to have their own cardinals, who caused the disorders among them. For whenever these factions have their cardinals, they do not remain quiet for long because cardinals foster the factions in Rome and out of it, and the barons are compelled to support them, and thus from the ambitions of prelates arise disorders and tumults among the barons. For these reasons, His Holiness Pope Leo found the pontificates most powerful, and it is to be hoped that, if others made it great in arms, he will make it still greater and more venerated by his goodness and infinite other virtues. Chapter 12 how many kinds of soldiery there are, and concerning mercenaries. Having discoursed particularly on the characteristics of such principalities as in the beginning I proposed to discuss, and having considered in some degree the causes of their being good or bad, and having shown the methods by which they have sought to acquire them and to hold them, it now remains for me to discuss generally the means of offence and defence which belong to each of them. We have seen above how necessary it is for a prince to have his foundations well laid, otherwise it follows of necessity that he will go to ruin. The chief foundations of all states, new as well as old or composite, are good laws and good arms. And as there cannot be good laws where the state is not well armed, it follows that where they are well armed they have good laws. I shall leave the laws out of the discussion and I shall speak of the arms. I say, therefore, that the arms with which a prince defends his state are either his own, or they are mercenaries, auxiliaries, or mixed. 
Mercenaries and auxiliaries are useless and dangerous, and if one holds his state based on these arms, he will stand neither firm nor safe, for they are disunited, ambitious, and without discipline, unfaithful, valiant before friends, cowardly before enemies. They have neither the fear of God nor fidelity to men, and destruction is deferred only so long as the attack is, for in peace one is robbed by them, and in war by the enemy. The fact is, they have no other attraction or reason for keeping the field than a trifle of a stipend, which is not sufficient to make them willing to die for you. They are ready enough to be your soldiers whilst you do not make war, but if war comes, they take themselves off or run from the foe, which I should have little trouble to prove, for the ruin of Italy has been caused by nothing else than by resting all her hopes for many years on mercenaries. And although they formerly made some display and appeared valiant amongst themselves, yet when the foreigners came, they showed what they were. Thus it was that Charles, King of France, was allowed to seize Italy with chalk in hand. And he who told us that our sins were the cause of it, told the truth, but they were not the sins he imagined, but those of which I have related. And as they were the sins of princes, it is the princes who have also suffered the penalty. I wish to demonstrate further the infelicity of these arms. The mercenary captains are either capable men or they are not, and if they are, you cannot trust them, because they always aspire to their own greatness, either by oppressing you, who are their master, or others contrary to your intentions. But if the captain is not skillful, you are ruined in the usual way. And if it be urged that whoever is armed will act in the same way, whether mercenary or not, I reply that when arms have been resorted to, either by a prince or a republic, then the prince ought to go in person and perform the duty of a captain. The republic has to send its citizens, and when one is sent who does not turn out satisfactorily, it ought to recall him, and when one is worthy, to hold him by the laws so he does not leave the command. And experience has shown that princes and republics, single-handed, making the greatest progress, and mercenaries doing nothing except damage, and it is more difficult to bring a republic, armed with its own arms, under the sway of one of its citizens, than it is to bring one armed with foreign arms. Rome and Sparta stood for many ages armed and free. The Switzers are completely armed and quite free. Of ancient mercenaries, for example, there are the Carthaginians, who were oppressed by their mercenary soldiers after the first war with the Romans, although the Carthaginians had their own citizens for captains. After the death of Epaminondas, Philip of Macedon was made captain of their soldiers by the Thebans, and after victory he took away their liberty. Duke Filippo, being dead, the Milanese enlisted Francesco Sforza against the Venetians, and he, having overcome the enemy at Caravaggio, allied himself with them to crush the Milanese, his masters. His father, Sforza, having been engaged by Queen Johanna of Naples, left her unprotected so that she was forced to throw herself into the arms of the King of Aragon to save her kingdom, and if the Venetians and Florentines formally extended their dominions by these arms, and yet their captains did not make themselves princes, but have defended them, I reply that the Florentines in this case have been favoured by chance, for of the able captains of whom they might have stood in fear, some have not conquered, some have been opposed, and others have turned their ambitions elsewhere. One who did not conquer was Giovanni Acuto, and since he did not conquer, his fidelity cannot be proved. But everyone will acknowledge that, had he conquered, the Florentines would have stood at his discretion. Sforza had the Brachesci always against him, so they watched each other. 
Francesco turned his ambition to Lombardy, Braccio against the Church and the Kingdom of Naples. But let us come to that which happened a short while ago. The Florentines appointed as their captain Pagolo Vitelli, a most prudent man, from whom a private position had risen to the greatest renown. If this man had taken Pisa, nobody can deny that it would have been proper for the Florentines to keep in with him, for if he became the soldier of their enemies, they had no means of resisting. And if they held to him, they must obey him. The Venetians, if their achievements are considered, will be seen to have acted safely and gloriously so long as they sent to war their own men. When armed with gentlemen and plebeians, they did valiantly. This was before they turned to enterprises on land, but when they began to fight on land, they forsook this virtue and followed the custom of Italy. And in the beginning of their expansion on land, though not having much territory, and because of their great reputation, they had not much to fear from their captains. But when they expanded, as under Carmignuola, they had a taste of this mistake, for having found him a most valiant man, they beat the Duke of Milan under his leadership, and, on the other hand, knowing how lukewarm he was in the war, they feared they would no longer conquer under him, and for this reason they were not willing, nor were they able, to let him go. And so, not to lose again that which they had acquired, they compelled, in order to secure themselves, to murder him. They had afterwards for their captains Bartolomeo di Bergamo, Roberto da San Severino, the Count of Pitigliano, and the like, under whom they had to dread loss and not gain as happened afterwards at Viella, where in one battle they lost that which in 800 years they had acquired with so much trouble. Because from such arms conquests come but slowly, long delayed and inconsiderable, but the losses sudden and portentous. And as with these examples, I have reached Italy, which has been ruled for many years by mercenaries. I wish to discuss them more seriously, in order that, having seen their rise and progress, one may be better prepared to counteract them. You must understand that the empire has recently come to be repudiated in Italy, that the Pope has acquired more temporal power, and that Italy has been divided up into more states, for the reason that many of the great cities took up arms against their nobles, who, formerly favoured by the Emperor, were oppressing them, whilst the Church was favouring them so as to gain authority and temporal power. In many others, their citizens became princes, from this it came to pass that Italy fell partly into the hands of the Church and of Republics, and the Church consisting of priests and the Republic of citizens unaccustomed to arms, both commenced to enlist foreigners. The first who gave renown to this soldiery was Alberigio di Conio, the Romanian. From the school of this man sprang, among others, Braccio and Sforza, who in their time were the arbiters of Italy. After these came all the other captains, who till now have directed the arms of Italy, and the end of all their valour has been that she has been overrun by Charles, robbed by Louis, ravaged by Ferdinand, and insulted by the Switzers. The principle that has guided them has been, first, to lower the credit of infantry so that they might increase their own. They did this because subsisting on their pay and without territory, they were unable to support many soldiers, and a few infantry did not give them any authority. So they were led to employ cavalry, with a moderate force of which were maintained and honoured. And affairs were brought to such a pass that, in an army of 20,000 soldiers, there were not to be found 2,000 foot soldiers. They had, besides this, used every art to lessen fatigue and danger to themselves and their soldiers, not killing in the fray, but taking prisoners and liberating without ransom. 
They did not attack towns at night, nor did the garrisons of the towns attack encampments at night. They did not surround the camp either with stockade or ditch, nor did they campaign in the winter. All of these things were permitted by their military rules and devised by them to avoid, as I have said, both fatigue and dangers. Thus they have brought Italy to slavery and contempt. Chapter 13. Concerning auxiliaries, mixed soldiery and one's own. Auxiliaries, which are the other useless arm, are employed when a prince is called in with his forces to aid and defend, as was done by Pope Julius in the most recent times. For he, having in the enterprise against Ferrara, had poor proof of his mercenaries, turned to auxiliaries, and stipulated with Ferdinand, king of Spain, for his assistance with men and arms. These arms may be useful and good in themselves, but for him who calls them in, they are always disadvantageous, for losing one is undone, and winning one is their captive. And although ancient histories may be full of examples, I do not wish to leave this recent one of Pope Julius II, the peril of which cannot fail to be perceived, for he, wishing to get Ferrara, threw himself entirely into the hands of the foreigner, but his good fortune brought about a third event, so that he did not reap the fruit of his rash choice, because having his auxiliaries routed at Ravenna, and the Switzers having risen and driven out the conquerors, against all exception, both his and others, it so came to pass that he did not become prisoner to his enemies, they having fled, nor to his auxiliaries, he having conquered by others' arms than theirs. The Florentines, being entirely without arms, sent 10,000 Frenchmen to take Pisa, whereby they ran more danger than at any other time of their troubles. The Emperor of Constantinople, to oppose his neighbours, sent 10,000 Turks into Greece, who, on the war being finished, were not willing to quit. This was the beginning of the servitude of Greece to the infidels. Therefore, let him who has no desire to conquer make use of these arms, for they are much more hazardous than mercenaries, because with them the ruin is already made. They are all united, all yield obedience to others, but with mercenaries, when they have conquered, more time and better opportunities are needed to injure you. They are not all of one community. They are found and paid by you, and a third party, which you have made their head, is not able all at once to assume enough authority to injure you. In conclusion, in mercenaries dastardly is most dangerous, in auxiliaries, valour. The wise prince, therefore, has always avoided these arms and turned to his own, and has been willing rather to lose with them than to conquer with the others, not deeming that a real victory which is gained with the arms of others. I shall never hesitate to cite Césaire Borgia and his actions. This duke entered the Romagna with auxiliaries, taking there only French soldiers, and with them he captured Imola and Forli. But afterwards, such forces not appearing to him reliable, he turned to mercenaries, discerning the less danger in them, and enlisted the Orsini and the Vitelli, whom presently, on handling and finding them doubtful, unfaithful and dangerous, he destroyed and turned to his own men. And the difference between one and the other of these forces can easily be seen when one considers the difference there was in the reputation of the Duke. When he had the French, when he had the Orsini and the Vitelli, and when he relied on his own soldiers, on whose fidelity he could always count, and found it ever increasing, he was never esteemed more highly than when everyone saw that he was the complete master of his own forces. I was not intending to go beyond Italian and recent examples, but I am unwilling to leave out Hiero, the Syracusan, he being one of those I have named above. 
This man, as I have said, made head of the army by the Syracusans, soon found out that a mercenary soldiery constituted like our Italian condottieri was of no use, and it appearing to him that he could neither keep them nor let them go, he had them all cut to pieces, and afterwards made war with his own forces and not with aliens. I wish also to recall to memory an instance from the Old Testament applicable to this subject. David offered himself to Saul to fight with Goliath, the Philistine champion, and, to give him courage, Saul armed him with his own weapons, which David rejected as soon as he had them on his back, saying that he could make no use of them, and that he wished to meet the enemy with his sling and knife. In conclusion, the arms of soldiers either fall from your back, or they weigh you down, or they bind you fast. Charles VII, father of King Louis XI, having by good fortune and valour liberated France from the English, recognised the necessity of being armed with forces of his own, and he established in his kingdom ordinances concerning men-at-arms and infantry. Afterwards, his son King Louis abolished the infantry and began to enlist the Switzers, which mistake, followed by others, is, as is now seen, a source of peril to that kingdom because, having raised the reputation of the Switzers, he has entirely diminished the value of his own arms, for he has destroyed the infantry altogether, and his men-at-arms he has subordinated to others, for, being as they were so accustomed to fight along with the Switzers, it does not appear that they can now conquer without them. Hence it arises that the French cannot stand against the Switzers, and without the Switzers, they do not come off well against the others. The armies of the French have thus become mixed, partly mercenary and partly national, both of which arms together are much better than mercenaries alone or auxiliaries alone, but much inferior to one's own forces. And this example proves it, for the Kingdom of France would be unconquerable if the ordinance of Charles had been enlarged or maintained. But the scanty wisdom of man, on entering into an affair which looks well at first, cannot discern the poison that is hidden in it, and as I have said above of hectic fevers, Therefore, if he who rules a principality cannot recognize evils until they are upon him, he is not truly wise, and this insight is given to few. And if the first disaster to the Roman Empire should be examined, it will be found to have commenced only with the enlisting of the Goths, because from that time the vigor of the Roman Empire began to decline, and all that valor which had raised it passed away to others. I conclude, therefore, that no principality is secure without having its own forces, on the contrary, it is entirely dependent on good fortune, not having the valour which in adversity would defend it. And it has always been the opinion and judgment of wise men that nothing can be so uncertain or unstable as fame or power not founded on its own strength. And one's own forces are those which are composed of either subjects, citizens or dependents. All others are mercenaries or auxiliaries. And the way to make ready one's own forces will be easily found if the rules suggested by me shall be reflected upon, and if one will consider how Philip, father of Alexander the Great, and many republics and princes have armed and organized themselves, to which rules I entirely commit myself. Chapter 14. That which concerns a prince on the subject of the art of war. A prince ought to have no other aim or thought, nor select anything else for his study, than war, and its rules and discipline, for this is the sole art that belongs to him who rules, and it is of such force 
that it not only upholds those who are born princes, but it often enables men to rise from a private station to that rank. And on the contrary, it is seen that when princes have thought more of ease than of arms, they have lost their states. And the first cause of your losing it is to neglect this art. And what enables you to acquire a state is to be master of the art. Francesco Sforza, though being marshal, from a private person became Duke of Milan. And the sons, through avoiding the hardship and troubles of arms, from dukes became private persons. For among other evils which being unarmed brings you, it causes you to be despised. And this is one of those ignominities against you which a prince ought to guard himself, as is shown later on. Because there is nothing proportionate between the armed and the unarmed. I wonder why and it is not despised. reasonable that he who is armed should mm. yield obedience willingly to him who is unarmed. Nor that the unarmed man should be secure among armed servants. Because there being in one disdain and another suspicion, it is not possible for them to work well together. Therefore, a prince who does not understand the art of war, over and above the other misfortunes already mentioned, cannot be respected by his soldiers, nor can he rely on them. He ought never, therefore, to have out of his thoughts the subject of war, and in peace he should addict himself more to its exercise than in war. This he can do in two ways, the one by action, the other by study. As regards action, he ought, above all things, to keep his men well organized and drilled, to follow incessantly the chase, by which he accustoms his body to hardships, and learns something of the nature of localities, and gets to find out how the mountains rise, how the valleys open out, and how the plains lie, and to understand the nature of rivers and marshes, and in all this to take the greatest care. Which knowledge is useful in two ways. Firstly, he learns to know his country, and is better able to undertake its defense. Afterwards, by means of the knowledge and observation of that locality, he understands with ease any other which it may be necessary for him to study hereafter, because the hills and valleys and plains and rivers and marshes that are, for instance, in Tuscany, have a certain resemblance to those of other countries, so that with a knowledge of the aspect of one country, one can easily arrive at a knowledge of others. And the prince that lacks this skill lacks the essential which it is desirable that a captain should possess, for it teaches him to surprise his enemy, to select quarters, to lead armies, to array the battle, to besiege towns to advantage. Philippoman, Prince of the Achaeans, among other praises which writers have bestowed upon him, is commended because in time of peace he never had anything on his mind but the rules of war, and when he was in the country with his friends, he often stopped and reasoned with them, if the enemy should be upon that hill, and we should find ourselves here with our army, with whom would be the advantage? How should one best advance to meet him, keeping the ranks? If we should wish to retreat, how ought we to pursue? And he would set forth to them, as he went, all the chances that could befall an army. He would listen to their opinion and state his, confirming it with reasons, so that by these continual discussions there could never arise in time of war any unexpected circumstances that he could not deal with. But to exercise the intellect, the prince should read histories and study there the actions of illustrious men to see how they have borne themselves in war, and to examine the causes of their victories and defeats, as to avoid the latter and imitate the former. And above all, do as an illustrious man did, 
who took as an exemplar one who had been praised and famous before him, and whose achievements and deeds he always kept in his mind. As it is said, Alexander the Great imitated Achilles, Caesar, Alexander, Scipio, Cyrus. And whoever reads the life of Cyrus, written by Xenophon, will recognize afterwards, in the life of Scipio, how that imitation was his glory, and how in chastity, affability, humanity, and liberality, Scipio conformed to those things which had been written of Cyrus by Xenophon. A wise prince ought to observe some such rules, and never in peaceful times stand idle, but increase his resources with industry, in such a way that they may be available to him in adversity, so that if fortune chances it may find him prepared to resist her blows. Chapter 15 Okay, chapter 15. That's where we'll leave off. Um, I wanted to make it a clean break, wherever it was that we were going to stop, and I thought that would be a good place. I'll mark it all down, and then we'll pick it up tomorrow. So it's chapter 15. marker one no yeah one thirty nine fifty two